Becky, there was a song, maybe three songs before this one, two or three songs, and you had the phrase up there, and it started with, uh, when my heart is frail. Your love changes everything. When my heart is frail, what was the next line? Your love changes everything. Yeah, your love changes everything. Would you find that, that phrase and put it back up there and just leave it? There you go. You can just leave it there. Good. Uh, I want to apologize to the Zoom people. Uh, <laughs> last week I just took off and didn't even think about you guys, and you had a blank screen. Wilma stepped in and took over and filled it in, but uh, I'll try to do better. And remember, you're here. <clears throat> Turn with me to John chapter 14 this morning. We have uh, looked at being still in our body, quieting our soul, and this morning we're going to talk about receiving in our spirit. And I want to tell you going in that some of what I'm going to share with you is my own personal experience. And you can take it for what it's worth. And uh, you will find as you do this that there are experiences with the Lord that are so intimate that nobody else needs to be there. Nobody else needs to know about it. And uh, the last thing you want to do is jump up and run off and tell everybody because it touches your heart so deeply that you just, it's just between you and him. And so... Uh, if you listen to this and you say, boy, that doesn't relate to me at all, well, that's okay. That's my experience with the Lord. I pray you'll uh, come to have those as well. In John chapter 14, verse 16, he says, I will ask the Father, this is Jesus, and I will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. That had to blow their mind. That had to stretch their understanding of God because as far as they were concerned, God was this unapproachable expression came to live in the tabernacle, came to abide in the temple. And now he says, that God who's been with you is now going to be in you. That's a stretch for us. For many of us, that's a theory, and it's a theological point that we embrace, but the reality that he lives in us is still something we have trouble wrapping our mind around. And he says, The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see him or know him, but you know him, because he abides with you, and he will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me, because I live, you will all live also. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He emphasizes it again. It took a great deal for them to comprehend that God was Jesus. That this God that had lived in the tabernacle, this God that lived in the temple, now lived in this man that they fellowshiped with. First John says, I touched him, I held him, I, 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 I felt him. I, I put my hands on him. I, I, I did that. He says, now this is something different. He says, in that day you will know that I am in my Father, you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and disclose myself to him. Now, the word disclose means to exhibit. It means to declare. It means to show. 
Now, some would argue this and say, well, he's talking about he's going to die, he's going to be crucified, he's going to die, and he's going to be resurrected, and then he will manifest himself. Well, that part was true. There was that natural expression. But it wasn't necessary for him to point out before he got there twice that I'm going to be in you to say that. So he's saying not only that period of time, but he's saying after he has left, he will be here again living somewhere, living in us. And so he says, I'm going to reveal myself where I live. I'm going to manifest myself where I live. I'm going to show myself where I live. And we use the illustration of, of uh, Caleb and Kennedy and, uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> Olivia, and uh, as the body, soul, and spirit. And Caleb was the body, Kennedy was the soul, and Olivia is the spirit. And that's where God lives. And so he's saying, I'm going to manifest myself. I'm going to reveal myself. I'm going to show myself to you from the place where I live in the same way that I manifested myself on the mountain and I manifested myself in the tabernacle and I manifested myself in the temple and I manifested myself in Jesus. I'm going to manifest myself, reveal myself, show myself to you in you because that's where I live. And it is in the Spirit where the Holy Spirit expresses and reveals the Son to us and the Father to us. He can't be known by simply our mind or emotions or our will. He can't be known by the sense of taste, the sense of smell, the sense of hearing, the sense of that we have by our five senses. He's known in our spirit because that's where he lives. And he chooses to manifest himself there. His spirit resides in our spirit. And he manifests himself there. He shows himself to us there in a way that changes our life. And that's what 2 Corinthians 13 is talking about. As he manifests himself there, reveals himself there, and we behold him there, That experience, that revelation changes who I am. This is where I meet and know God. This is where I come to see who he is personally. Listen, this is where the God of Scripture becomes the God of my soul. There's a difference. I can read the Scripture And I can agree with the scripture. And I can say, yes, that's true. And yes, that happened. And it'd be completely disconnected from me. But it is in my spirit that the God of scripture becomes the God of my soul. Because he manifests himself in my spirit and it changes my soul. It changes who I am. It's where the God of history becomes the God of present, of the present time. That's in my spirit. That's where I am. It's where I come to find out in reality. This is where I come to know under no uncertain terms that God loves me. It is in my spirit that he manifests his love to me to where I know that he loves me. And it wouldn't matter if it was written anywhere, I would know because of his manifestation of his love to me in my spirit, I would know that he loves me. And no longer does Jesus loves me, this I know for the Bible tell me so, carry near as much weight as the revelation of his love for me that takes place in my spirit. This is where I find that it's specific to me. This is where I find that I am accepted by God. This is where I find that God likes me. Some of us don't think God likes us. We think God had to save everybody, and I was part of everybody, so he saved me. But if he could have left me out, he'd have done it. 
This is where I find specifically that God accepts me, that God approves me. This is where I find out that God is holy and wants me to live holy. And he does it without completely free of any sense of judgment whatsoever. There's no list to keep. There's no rules to keep. There's no law to keep. There's no list of principles to live by. It is just this awareness in my spirit that God is holy. He wants me to live holy. It's where I come to experience firsthand what it's like to be forgiven, to be completely released from anything that I've ever done, anything that I'm doing, and anything that I'm ever going to do, and to feel and to experience that lightness, that weight that's lifted. This is where it takes place in my spirit. So much of what we know about God is secondhand information. It's something we were told. It's something we were forced to believe. It's something we were said, if you're a good Christian, you would believe this. But there was no conviction in our spirit. It wasn't firsthand. We know God loves us because he loves everybody. We know God forgives because he's forgiven everybody. And all of those things. But it's in our spirit that God reveals to us firsthand revelation of who he is and what he is like, and he shows it to me. He can only be known in our spirit, and that by revelation of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit comes to live in us, and he reveals to us there who the Father is, specifically and what he's like and how much he loves us. Now look at 2 Corinthians 3. I asked you to look over that last week. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. Next week, I hope next week is the last one of these uh, for a while anyway, but next week I'm going to go in detail on this verse. I saw some things this week that are just wonderful, and uh, we'll cover them next week. But today I just want to touch on it for a minute. But we all, with unveiled face, as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. How does it say, in this verse, how does it say that I am changed into the image of God, of Christ? How does it say? What what, what do I have to do? Behold. Behold. I know that doesn't make sense to my mind. There's got to be something I can do. But you see, understanding that is like trying to describe to someone the taste of chocolate. What does chocolate taste like? Well, it tastes like chocolate. Or here's a real stretch. What does chicken taste like? Well, it tastes like frog legs. But what, is, what, what does frog legs taste like? Taste tastes like chicken. What if I've never tasted chicken? It's like trying to describe to a person who has been blind their entire life the cascade of colors in an orchard of aspen trees. It, it, it just... There's nothing to relate to. There's nothing to, to, to refer it to that helps me understand what it is. That's what he's saying here. This is not like anything you can understand. There must be something I can do to help. There must be something I can do to, 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 to make this thing happen. Being transformed into his image is not an outward behavioral change. Get this. Being transformed into his image is not an outward behavioral change. It will affect the outward. But just because there's change in the outward does not mean there has been transformation on the inward. And God starts in the inward. He transforms the inward. 
He changes the inward, and then it is expressed outward. This transformation, listen to me, this transformation is the forming of Christ in my spirit. It is the enlarging of the life of God inside, working its way out. There are a lot of people, a lot of us, that have grown up in church. But we haven't grown up in Christ. There's a huge difference. One is an external behavioral modification. The other is a change on the inside that God works in us as we behold him, as we see him. It can only come, this life change can only come from the life of God inside of me because it is the enlarging of that life in me. And the larger that life becomes, the more formed Christ becomes, the greater the expression of that Christ, the greater expression of that life comes through my soul and comes through my body and reveals itself. Revelation of his person is the trigger mechanism for transformation. I want to say that again. Revel- so I didn't say I didn't I, I didn't say this. Somebody else said it. And I don't who the quote is, or I would acknowledge it. But uh, we're going to throw it out there anyway. Revelation of his person is the trigger mechanism for transformation. What's got to be triggered in me? What triggers this change in me? Well, what triggers that change is I have a revelation of who Christ is. He reveals himself to me. He shows himself to me. He exhibits himself to me. And in him doing that, there is a change that takes place in in myself. Most change that we're familiar with in the Christian life is outward behavioral modification. We have a new list to keep. For so many new Christians, the Christian life consists of, I can't do this stuff anymore. I have to do this stuff. It's all outward. It's performing Christian exercises and participating in Christian activities. We have all kinds of weird ways. Jewelry, tattoos. I have a tattoo that expresses my Christianity. Some of you got tattoos that express your Christianity. I know, but I'm telling you, that's not the heart of what God is saying. He changes from the inside. He changes this through revelation of himself. This transformation of the life of God, this transformation into the likeness of Christ, is a spiritual work done by God alone. It is not done by human effort. It is not done by trying harder. It is not done by striving for for perfection. It is here in my spirit where I receive what God has done and is doing. I don't try to accomplish what God wants to do. I receive what God is doing. You see the distinction? I don't want to try to do something to finish this work. I receive the work that Christ did on the cross that is finished. Listen. Everything Christ has done is completely irrelevant to our life if we don't receive it. When my heart is frail and when I'm incomplete, I promise to try harder. When my heart is frail and I have failed so many times and committed the same sin over and over, I will rededicate my life and promise to do better and read my Bible and go to church and never do it again. How does that work for you? Take it from old people. It don't work. Okay? It doesn't work. 
And what does he say? When my heart is frail, and when I'm incomplete, I will choose to receive. You love me. The enemy tells me you don't love me. My behavior says you don't love me. My attitude tells me you don't love me. When I'm frail, when I'm incomplete, I'm choosing to receive that you love me. In spite of everything else, in spite of what I'm hearing, in spite of what I've done in the past, in spite of what I've been told by others, I am choosing to receive it. Jesus died on the cross for the world, but it is totally irrelevant to humankind unless mankind receives what he did at the cross then it becomes reality in our life. Well, that changes not. The same principle holds true. I don't work to get saved. I receive the work that's done that's provided in my salvation. I don't work to become a better person. I receive the work that Christ did to make me a brand new creation. I don't work to perform it. I receive what is already done. And it is here where I receive what God has done and is doing. It is something God has done in us and then through us. Our part is to receive what he's done. The same principle for salvation holds true in our spiritual walk. We don't get saved by receiving and then roll up our sleeves and try to work this thing out. I am saved because I receive the work that's accomplished And the posture that I take from then on throughout my life is receiving what God has done, receiving what God has done, embracing what God has done, holding to what God has done, and rejecting everything else that says I have to work at it. You say, that sounds too easy. No, I didn't say it was easy. I said it was simple. Not easy. Because the flesh so desperately wants to be recognized. The flesh so desperately wants to get credit for it. The flesh so desperately wants to do something to be recognized for it. I want the Christian of the Year pin. I want the Christian of the Year award. I want to be recognized as a spiritual person. And it flies in the face of the urges of the flesh that says, there is nothing you can do. Receive what God has done. Receive what he's doing. Listen, I am not capable of being Christ-like. Some of you have known me since 1992. You know I am not capable of being Christ-like. I can be the chief cynic when my flesh is in control. I cannot do anything. The best I can do is a cheap religious imitation. Well, I'm like Jesus. God makes us Christ-like as we behold him and receive his transforming work and his reality. In our mind, our emotions will not always have what we can determine to measure success in our time with God. I love what Michael said this morning. Boy, I could have gone off on that. God didn't tame, I want you to keep score. God says, I've got this. I know where you're at. I know where you were. I know where I want you to be. I'm in charge of this. You're not in charge of that. And that's the same true with my time with the Lord. If I go in the time in my time with the Lord with a scorecard and say, okay, I'm looking for this, I'm expecting this, I want this, I, this has got to happen, and I leave and none of that happened, then my assessment determines my time with God was wasted. And we don't ever do anything to waste time, do we? So we quit. Time with the Father is never wasted because as I behold him, he is changing me into his image. 
I can't measure the growth of my hair. No, let's pray. Joni, she has hair. Can't measure. You can't measure the growth of your hair moment by moment. But you see the results, don't you? You see the end when it does grow. You see, this is a walk where I must trust that even though I can't measure the immediate returns by my standard, that God is working. Well, how do I know that? Because he said he is. That's the unseen what we talked about a few weeks ago. That's the unseen realm that we're not familiar with. We're not comfortable with the unseen. I've got to see it. I've got to feel it. I've got to touch it. I've got to taste it. I've got to hear it. I've got to smell it. Don't, don't get this unseen. Sometimes what God does is unseen at the immediate, at the moment. <clears throat> now, let me tell you this, as you begin to do this, as you begin to still your body, quiet your soul, and receive in your spirit. This is important to understand. When I become aware of his presence, when I walk through this, and I've sat in there and gotten still, and and I've quieted my soul as best I can to not go with all the thoughts that comes. When I come into the presence of God, what happens next is completely up to the Father. You've got to understand that. Again, it's up to Him. It's not up to me to determine whether it's worthwhile or not. It's not up to me to have that agenda going in. Whenever the priest went into the high priest, went into the Holy of Holies once a year, the only thing that was done in there was what was, what was given as direction from the Father. That was it. It's important that I learn to let go of my agenda and what I'm expecting to happen and what I want to happen. During that time, I may receive affirmation. God just may affirm me. You know, I never will forget. This is one of the times I was, I'd been hunting of all things. And God likes hunting. And, uh, I'd been hunting, and I was driving back in that old red truck. Some of you remember that I used to have. And I've told you this before. And I'm driving down the road. I'm not thinking about anything. I'm in there by myself. And I wasn't really, you know, in a deep, prayerful, meditative state. I'm just trying to get home. And I think I was going through Waco. And as clear as a bell, the Lord said to me, I like hanging out with you. Now, that didn't mean that he didn't like hanging out with anybody else. But it was specific to me. It was in a language that I understand. I like hanging out with you. I hadn't, I was hunting. Hadn't been preaching. Hadn't been teaching. Hadn't been on my face in prayer for days. Hadn't fasted for 40 days. But that, to me, was in my language You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. I'm telling you, that that really just blew me away. That he wanted to be with me. That's affirmation. That might happen. There may be conviction. Now we think of conviction. Oh God, here we go. Convict us of sin. It may be convicts of sin, but when God does it, he just says, You know, I I would rather you didn't do that convinces me. Since I want what he wants, I don't want to do it either. And he might convince me. You know, we get that part in John where he says, when the Holy Spirit comes, he'll convince the world of sin, judgment, and righteousness. We get that first two, sin and judgment. But righteousness, he might want to convince you of how right you are before him because of what Jesus did. Conviction. Maybe a blessing. Maybe love. It may be a time for you to just minister to the Lord. 
It may not be verbal. What I'm talking about is communication without words, but communication through awareness. You're aware of God's love for you. There may not be a word. There may not even be a verbalization about it. But in that place where God reveals himself, he reveals to you without words how much he loves us. And the only translation you've got is he loves me. I mean, whenever John saw the vision for Revelation, I don't believe God spelled all that out for him. I believe God showed it to him, and the best explanation he had was this, Revelations. And he, that's all I got. That's all I know to describe it. Here's what I saw. Sometimes in the Holy of Holies, sometimes in our spirit, the communication is without words, but it's being made aware. And when I'm before him, I'm not waiting for him to come. But I'm waiting before him in his presence. See the difference? One says, I'm waiting. I'm waiting for you to come. Okay, I'm here. Come, God. Come on down. What can I do to get you to come? What can I see? And then we don't get whatever we think that looks like, and so we think, well, he didn't come. But if I understand and embrace the reality that he is here, he's already here, then I'm not waiting for him to come. I'm waiting in his presence before him for whatever he wants to do. See the difference? We, we're real big on trying to call God down, trying to get God to fall, trying to get God to show up. He is here in us, and he wants to reveal himself to us if we'll be open and still and wait for him. When we touch the Spirit in our spirit, when we touch the Holy Spirit in our spirit, there is an awareness that takes place beyond our thoughts and our emotions. Now, for those of us who are ruled by our emotions, this is going to be a stretch because we gauge everything by our emotions, how I feel about it. God is not an emotion. He is spirit. I can touch him void of an emotion that I'm able to describe. That's not the gauge. The best way to describe it, this is just whenever it happens to me, the best way to describe it is there is an unsearchable peace and an amazing sense of awe that you are in the presence of God. I love the song Linger. It says, till time is removed. When you're there, time doesn't matter. Now, time will assail you before you get there and tell you, you ain't got time, you need time, you need to take this time, here's the time, time's running out, all this stuff. But once you press through the fear of silence and get to the point in his presence, time is irrelevant. It doesn't make any difference. You just don't want to leave. You just don't want to go anywhere else. I just want to be with him. I don't want to be doing anything else. Words would be shouts because I am lost in him and in his presence and in his being. Being in the presence of God helps me see things as they are instead of how I wish things were or how I regret the things that have been. Say that again. Being in his presence helps me see things as they are instead of how I wish things would be or how I regret the things that have been. 
And those are the two most significant sources of stress in our life. Think about it. Worried about the future, guilty about the past. Worried about what's coming, fearful of what happened in the past. But when you're in the presence of God, all you're thinking about, all you're aware of, all you're conscious of is here. I am. He is present. You are present. What has happened doesn't matter. What's going to happen doesn't matter. Because you know you are hiding under the wings of the Almighty. You're in his shadow. And it just doesn't make any difference. Now, ten minutes from now, you may get out on the street and decide it all matters. Okay? But it all depends on what you receive, what you welcome in that time with the Lord. I am present. Okay. How do you know you're there? How do you know you've arrived in his presence? All right. The truth is, you've always been there. You just haven't allowed yourself to become aware that you're there. What do he say? I will never leave you. I will always be there. So he's always here. So I don't go anywhere to get in his presence. I allow myself freedom from the distractions that keep me from his presence. I allow myself from the assailing thoughts that keep me from his presence, that keep me from being aware of his presence. Truth is, you've always been there. We just haven't allowed ourselves to become aware. Listen, it was never about us going anywhere. It was all about him coming here and us recognizing and welcoming him here. Welcoming and receiving him here. You are here. I don't have to go anywhere. If God lives in me, I don't have to go anywhere to be in his presence. Now, I may not be aware of it. What keeps me from being aware? Thousands of things. When I come to the place in my life that the obstacles don't matter, I'm aware of his presence. As I enter his presence... There are two postures that I take. And you might think these are contradictory one to another. But as we describe them, you'll see that they're not. The first posture that I take is humility. Humility. That means I have no sense of entitlement. That means I have no sense that I deserve to be here. God, I read my Bible this morning. I deserve to be here. I didn't snap my sister's head off when she said that. I deserve to be here. I deserve for you to listen to me. If I'm going to come into his presence, there is a sense of humility. that says there is no sense of entitlement. There is nothing I've done to earn me the right to be here. Rather, I am exceedingly aware that I have nothing to bring of my own that will allow me access to his presence. Listen, until I realize how empty I am, I will not receive. Because if I don't realize I'm empty, I won't realize I need anything. As long as I realize I got something, I'm not going to be willing to receive Because I've already got it. See? It's important to understand I have nothing to bring. God, I have nothing that earns me the right to be in your presence. I have nothing that earns the privilege to come into your presence. Nothing to bring of my own that will allow me access to your presence. If I'm empty, I will receive. Here's the second one. First one is humility. The second one is boldness. Boy, that seems contradictory to one another. 
Okay? Boldness, humility, boldness, humility, confidence. They seem like those two don't go together. Well, humility is the posture that I have absolutely nothing to bring into this situation. Boldness comes from the complete confidence in Christ's work that makes it possible for me to be here. It's not boldness in my own ability. It is boldness in God's ability. God was able to overcome all of my weaknesses, all of my sin, all of my barriers. He was able in Christ to overcome all of that that gave me the privilege to come into his presence. And I have confidence in that ability that allows me to be here. The mistake we make sometimes is we just take one side of this. Well, I have nothing to bring. So there's nothing available to provide access. If I don't have anything to bring, then there's nothing available that's going to allow me to come into God's presence. That's the mistake. I have nothing to bring. And there is plenty that is sufficient to allow me to come into God's presence. Look with me in First Corinthians chapter, Second uh, Corinthians chapter three, where we are. He says this. He's talking about. We'll begin in verse one. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, as some letters of condemnation to you, commendation to you, or from you? You are our letter, written in our hearts, known and read by all men being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such confidence we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. The letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. You see the humility and the boldness? The humility says, I have nothing. The boldness says, Christ has everything. The humility says, I don't have anything to bring. The boldness says, Christ's work was sufficient to make it available for me to come into God's presence. Those are the two postures that I embrace. I am aware that Christ's work overcame every obstacle in my life and provided a means for me to live in God's presence. One of the questions I asked you a while back is, what obstacles has God overcome in our life to allow us to come into God's presence? You know what the answer is? All of them. All of them. Sin. He forgave me of all my sins. Sin nature, he nailed it to the cross. My heritage, I am no longer a child of wrath, but I am a son of God because I receive Jesus. The power of sin has been broken. As Jesus rose from the grave, he destroyed that power over me. Shame, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, I don't have the right ancestry. He made us priests. Before only a priest could go, he said, okay, I'll make you a priest. We are a nation of priests. Every single obstacle that has been placed in our way, God has provided the breakthrough. The only obstacles that exist are the ones that I put there. That's it. God's destroyed them all. The only obstacles that exist are the ones that I put there. And that's typically because I believe a lie. That there is something there. My part is to receive and apply what he has accomplished. Even when it's contrary to my emotions. Some of us have a hard time saying this. I am the righteousness of God. How can that be? That's my point. It's true whether you think it be or not. I am 
the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. How can you say that? I saw you lose your temper. I saw you blow your horn, that guy on the highway. I saw you give that checker at Walmart a piece of your mind that you couldn't spare to lose. I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus, I am the righteousness of God because of what Christ has done. Boldness comes from the awareness that Christ was sufficient to overcome my inadequacy. My first posture is I am inadequate within myself. My second posture is Christ has made me adequate because of the work he has done in me. All right? Hebrews chapter 4. I've already showed you 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Let's look in Hebrews chapter 4. Verse 14. He describes this process of what took place in the Holy of Holies. Not in the earthly Holy of Holies, but in the heavenly Holy of Holies. And he says in verse 14 of chapter 4, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Those times that you say, No one understands. I'm the only one that's ever been through this. I'm the only one that struggles with this sin. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. What did he just say? We have a high priest that can sympathize with our weakness. One who's tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What's God going to impart to me when I come into his presence? Mercy and grace to help me in my time of need, in my time of inadequacy. Look in chapter 10, verse 19. (laughs) Chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, we have confidence that we can come into the presence of God, not on our own, but by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for for us through the veil that is his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We have a priest that did the work, and we can come boldly. Now, when the enemy comes and he says, you don't have the right to be here. You haven't earned the right to come into the presence of God this week. You've been a mess this week. You've really messed up. You don't have the right to come into the presence of God. What do I do? I agree with my adversary. You're right. I don't have the right to come in here. I have not earned the right to come in here. But I have received the right from the one who made it possible for me to come. I, that's my right to be here. I have received the right to be here. I didn't earn it. I didn't work for it. And you're right. I didn't deserve it. But I have received it. And that makes it possible. It is a work that destroyed every barrier that kept me from enjoying his presence. The rending of the veil was just a picture of every barrier that's broken that kept us from the presence of God. When Jesus died and the veil in the temple was rent from top to bottom, that's a picture that says there's no more barriers. None, none. 
There's no law. There's no sin. There's nothing that can keep me if I receive it, if I welcome it in it. The only ones that exist are the ones that I put up by choice, by distractions, by unbelief, by failing to receive, or by having my own agenda. Those things that I create disqualify me from going into his presence. And they say, God, your work wasn't sufficient. Look at all this stuff. God says, it is what? What did Jesus say? It is finished. You got nothing to add to it. You got nothing to contribute. You say, well, man, you didn't talk about confessing sin. And I used to think that I had to go through this long sin list to be able to enter in the presence of God. What I found out is that there is no place on earth better to confess your sin than in the presence of God. Otherwise, I'm going to confess them to earn the right to be there. I've learned that if I'll draw near to him and that there is sin there, if there is sin there, he might be a day where he convinces me of righteousness. But if there is sin there, he will point out that there's sin. And my response is, you are right. Thank you for forgiving me. I don't tuck my tail, slouch my head, and run back out. What better place to be restored? What the only place to be restored is in the presence of God. Now, I know so much of this may be new to you. Not that you haven't heard it, but the experience of it. I want to encourage you, don't quit. Don't give up. Continue to press into his presence. Continue to set those times apart where you behold him and just let him minister to you. And next week I'll give you, we'll go through 2 Corinthians 13, uh, chapter 3, verse 18. In a, what was it? What verse was it? 18? Yeah. 318? Yeah. We'll go over that one more time next week in detail. All right. Any questions? Still my body, quiet my soul, receiving my spirit. I want to hear of your experience in doing that. I want to hear what the Lord showed you when you set out to enjoy his presence. I want to hear that from you. That's encouraging to me, okay, to see what God's doing in you. Any questions?